All right. So we have quite a bit of scripture reading to get through first, but it's necessary to capture both the story, the narrative, and also some interpretive help from James. Genesis 16, beginning at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave him to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and every hand, everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. <coughs> Excuse me. Now please turn ahead to Genesis 21. Beginning at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abram, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abram, Abraham laughing. And she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, 
because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. <coughs> and now please turn, if you would, to James chapter 1. James will help us in terms of interpretation of Genesis 16. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now we'll not get through all of what I hope to do with James as it attaches itself to, in meaning to Genesis 16, but uh, we'll see where we get. We'll get started on this this evening. Now, I've entitled this Ishmael, Abraham's Failure in Another Trial of Faith. We might also call it Ishmael, Sarah's Failure in Another Trial of Faith. Now, last Sunday afternoon, we looked at God's covenant with Abraham, once again declared and expanded upon in Genesis 15. As we studied that conversation between God and Abraham, 
we noted that God's revelation of his covenant with Abraham taught the patriarch to trust God to fulfill the blessings of covenant, which had been promised to him. But more than that, Abraham is also taught to trust God to fulfill, fulfill the conditions of covenant. A more immediately relevant understanding of those lessons teaches us that those in covenant with God must believe him. He requires faith in us. Faith both in his word and in his power. We are to exercise faith in God's word to deliver what he promises in our salvation and faith in his power to fulfill the conditions of salvific relationship with himself. We're to believe fully that the promised blessings of his gracious covenant of salvation are secured by his powerful hand. Abraham had such faith, and it was accounted to him by God as righteousness. That faith was accounted to Abraham as a fulfillment of the conditions of covenant, even though it was God himself who worked in Abraham to produce that faith. Now this afternoon, I want to prepare us to begin to interpret the events of the entrance of Ishmael into the story of Abraham by first summarizing what we've seen of Abraham's life up to this point, or at least one perspective of that summary. <clears throat> Throughout the Genesis revelation of the life of Abraham, there's a constant theme of faith. We frequently see the testing of Abraham's faith and the varied expression of that faith, sometimes vibrant, sometimes his faith is wavering. Now, as we move forward in our study of Abraham's life, we approach chapter 16 and discover that Abraham was, in fact, at times a man of wavering faith. He was like the man who came to our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 9. He begged him to heal his son who was possessed by an unclean spirit. That man was told by our Lord, all things are possible for the one who believes. To which the man replied, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This was Abraham. This was Abraham. He believed God just as we do who trust in the salvation of Jesus Christ. But at times, the weak material human nature, that nature of the corrupt and fallen mind and heart and body of the believer, it tempts us to doubt. It leads us into doubt. We worry, we wonder, we angst over perceived impossibilities. Like the Father in Mark 9, we find that there is unbelief in our hearts at times. Can God do what he declares? Is he really whom he declares himself to be? Will he fully accomplish my good right now, as he promised, in this event, in this difficulty? What if he leaves something out? What if I'm required to wait a long time or experience pain, prolonged pain? or great discomfort? What if life is too hard, even for the faith that God has given me to persist? Will I then fall out of covenant? Will God's promise prove null? Will my heritage be lost? The father in Mark 9, pleading for his son, for the deliverance from that possession, that evil possession, he was facing such trials of faith. And here in Genesis 16, we see Abraham and Sarah facing another such trial of faith in life. 
Now, this is nothing new to Abraham. It's nothing new to his experience. His faithful trust and obedience has always been tested. It was tested from the beginning of God's revelation of himself to Abraham when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of relative safety and prosperity to go sojourn in the wilderness indefinitely. Abraham's faith was tested when God brought famine to the land of Canaan. And do you remember what happened? Abraham decided to forego his wandering, to flee to Egypt for refuge. He didn't find refuge then in the promises of God. His faith was wavering again. It's now being tested again by the conspicuous absence of the promised heir. This promised heir is missing the one who would be the sign of God's fulfillment of covenant and the promise of a future seed, a redeemer, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's missing. In the absence of that promised heir, Abraham and Sarah doubt God. Now this doubt is not unique to believing Abraham and Sarah. Every Christian struggles in his or her life from time to time with a wavering faith. At times we'll all discover that like the father in Mark 9, we need to cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help it right now. Chapter 16 in Genesis is such a moment in Abraham and Sarah's lives. Now, I've read James 1, 1 through 18 to you because that letter helps us interpret what's happening at this moment in Abraham's life, in Sarah's life. As an interpretive tool, these first 18 verses of James's letter guides us to a practical understanding of Genesis 16 and the story as it moves to 21. James's commentary about faith will also help us draw relevant application from the narrative of the life of Abraham and Sarah as described in Genesis 16 and 21. So let's begin our study proper by reading Genesis 16, 1 through 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. What's happening here? Let's begin with Sarah. We see, first, that Sarah has faith, and Sarah has doubt. We're looking at Sarah and Abraham's doubt here. The doubt produces a worry in her. God has not provided the heir Abraham has been promised. Sarah's doubt is founded on a variety of apparently real material concerns. She's not just making this up. She's left the relative safety and security of civilization and family and friends to follow her husband apparently unquestioningly to wander in the land of Canaan, waiting on the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God to her husband. Now this is an expression of faith. It's an expression of faith in Sarah, in Abraham's declaration of God's covenant promises. She's not heard the voice of God. There's no indication that she witnessed the presence of God or heard his voice, which we just recently read about in chapter 15. And still, Sarah is anxiously anticipating an heir and the fulfillment of God's promise. So there's real faith here. 
Perhaps we might even say a more wonderful faith than Abraham's. Abraham had at least seen and heard unmistakable signs of the reality of God's presence, of his promises and power. But Sarah, all she's got is Abraham's good word regarding these things. It turns out that that wasn't enough for his nephew Lot. But it's enough for Sarah. Now for this reason, Peter commends Sarah to all Christians and especially Christian women, when in 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, do you hear the faith? Who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This entire statement about Sarah in 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6 is a declaration of her faith. It's a declaration of where, where she's at right now, having arrived at this place in Genesis 16. Peter's teaching us the excellency of Sarah's faith, her hope in God. He's teaching us that it's revealed in its beauty, in its divine origin even, in her trust in her husband and in her submission to him as he obeyed the commands of God, as he believed in what he communicated to her of the covenant promises of God. Her faith was harder earned than Abraham's. She was able even to conquer fear by her faith in what her husband was able to declare to her of God's covenantal promise. She's very much like us today. We believe in whom we have not seen, just as Sarah did. Now, having lifted Sarah up, we have to take a moment to somewhat throw her under the bus. Sarah also doubted. When she looked at the condition of her body, the apparent delay of God, her senses and her reason declared to her that physically bearing a child was no longer a possibility. Notice that her doubt seems, seems reasonable. Fallen reason and natural longing for a child and probably even a right-hearted but wrong-headed spiritual zeal for the fulfillment of God's promise of redemption. This is all mixed together and produced doubt in God. It was a moment of weak faith which produced sinful doubt in God's wisdom and power, in his veracity and truthfulness. Now by way of application, I want to pause for a moment and note that our fallen reason, our senses, and our desires are hardly the best guide to our faith. From Sarah's example here in Genesis 16, we learn that we are our faith's worst enemy in many respects. The material senses and human understanding have been so corrupted by the fall and by sin that we can't trust them to interpret obedience to God or motivate us to practical expressions of faith. Not by themselves. We ought to maintain a spiritually healthy doubt of our own mind our own emotions, our own desires. Our faith is not supported by these things naturally. These things are to be shaped and molded and corralled by our faith. And our faith is not produced by, our, by these things. Therefore, it can't be ruled by our reason or our emotion or our desire and our will. Rather, God who has produced that faith in us by his word and the power of his spirit defines the expression of our faith. He alone rules over our faith. Had Sarah not ceased 
in a moment of weakness to rest in the word of God declared to her by her husband, how much sin and disorder and trouble might she have spared herself and her family and her spouse. Brethren, it's the word and the spirit that rules our faith. And it's our faith, which is the gift of God, that ought to rule our mind and our heart, not the other way around. When that shifted in Sarah, she doubted, and so will we. So let's be warned by such a shift. Notice also that Sarah's doubt was produced by a misinterpretation of providence. In Genesis 16:2, she says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Sounds a little dramatic, doesn't it? I think probably because there's a little bit of drama there. Now that wasn't exactly wrong, but it wasn't exactly right either, was it? We have the advantage of knowing the history of her life. I read Genesis 21 to you. She wasn't right, was she? And we know that God was very soon going to open her womb and she would conceive and bear the son of promise. Her misinterpretation of the activity of God in her life was a bit arrogant. And it fed into her doubt. There's a measure of pride in this this declaration as if she knows the mind and the purpose of God as if she can safely interpret his hand of providence at a given moment of time in her life with complete wisdom as if she could do that through fallen human observation and reason and come out all right. Her doubt was fed by this misinterpretation of providence and this misinterpretation of providence is fed by her doubt. It's like a snake swallowing its own tail. Sarah's wavering faith is leading her to self-injury. We see that her error expands when in verse 2 she says the following, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Not only is God's plan and providence doubted and misinterpreted, but her own plan and providence is elevated to wisdom and power. God brought down and Sarah's reason brought up. Now here we arrive, I think, at another point of application. The faith of the regenerate believer rests in God. It trusts him and it waits upon him patiently. Loss of patience, misinterpretation of providence leads us into sin and doubt leads to greater sin. Sarah has now included her husband in her doubt And he also shares that same wavering faith because he accepts her sinful interpretation of God's intent and he commits adultery. Now how careful we ought to be when our faith is being tried by what appears to be a slowness of providence. When we're impatient, when we're struggling to quietly trust, sin is at the door and its desire is to conquer us, but we ought to faithfully rule over it. How careful we ought to be judging the events of our lives and drawing conclusions from those judgments which lead to significant decisions. We ought to be cautious, careful, guarded. Had Abraham paused a bit, just stopped a moment, faithfully reminded himself of all that he had seen and heard of the word and the power of God. It had just happened in Genesis 15. We don't know exactly how, 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 how early that was. But that had happened, and that was not the first time that God had spoken with Abraham. Had he taken that time to, be, to remind himself, then his faith would have been exercised, and he would have led his wife righteously 
in this instance. Instead, he too is swept up and carried away into sin through impatience and too much trust in self. The purpose of God's delaying providence gets entirely missed. It was a test. It was a test of faith. They had been in the land of Canaan for 10 years, a decade, and no son had yet appeared during that decade, not because God was lax, the way a man counts laxness, but because in his wise and holy timing, he, and, and because of the wisdom of his holy timing and his expression of providence. That's why it was 10 years. This was a test of Abraham's and Sarah's faith, a test they both failed. And as we read in chapter 21, their failure turns out to be quite painful. Now, one last point of application, and then we'll move on. Let's be careful to watch out for a sinful spirit of pride which can appear in our minds and our hearts, suggesting to us that God needs our assistance, that his word somehow is not sufficient. This sinful spirit tells us this. Eh, Over there, you'll get what you need. Over here, you'll receive spiritual insight. Somewhere other than what God has said. This sinful spirit of pride insinuates he's not imminent and active. It suggests that he, he, has he truly said? Is that what he really said? Pride is conceived in the womb of these insinuations. And when it gives birth, we find ourselves charting our own path toward what we think are laudable destinations, only to later discover that we've been on a journey of folly. This is exactly what happens to Abraham and Sarah. God does not need us to be innovative in terms of what he has plainly declared of his will and purpose for our lives in his word. Rather, he requires that we recognize his supremacy in all things and submit humbly to his word. That was his expectation of Abraham and Sarah. And it's his expectation of his people to this day. Is God's word sufficient? Is it certain? Is it infallible? Brethren, we say amen. Now in James chapter 1, as we looked at those verses, uh, I want to turn back to that. And I want James to help us interpret what God intended of his testing of the faith of Abraham and Sarah. In James chapter 1, 2 through 5, James says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The ten years that Sarah waited for her son were long years. It was, brethren, we we need to try to put ourselves in her shoes. She's an old woman. She's got no children. She's lived for fourscore years at this point or more three to four, and she's been without a child that whole time. She's aging more and more by the day, and perhaps it was right about this time that biologically her ability to conceive physically ceased. What a blow that would have been if that event was interpreted merely with natural human reason. It might even lead to a desperate act, (laughs) dare I say. I think what we read of her solution with Hagar was in fact 
a desperate act. This was not God's will for Sarah, not his revealed will, in making her go through that 10-year trial. It was not his purpose. That trial was designed to produce steadfastness in her. That is to say that God was working to produce a patient, tough, enduring spirit in her. He was building godly character in her through this trial of long waiting. There was a kind of persistence that God intended to grow in her, a persistence of faith, a persistence that held on by the fingernails when necessary and declared, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That, James says, is why we're tried and tested. That's why after 10 years, there was still no son of promise. You see, faith must be exercised. It has to be exercised like a spiritual muscle to be toned up and strengthened. When God brings pain and hardship and emotional agony into our lives, brethren, it's not for our destruction. It's not for the removal of your faith. Rather, it's for its empowerment. It's enlivening. It's invigorating. Even as Sarah's outer body was dying, her inner spirit was being renewed. Her faith was being tempered and made more glorious and more fit for the enjoyment of covenant with God. Now likewise, we're tested, we're tried so that our faith will be more fit for the presence of God, for the enjoyment of God now and with great fulfillment in heaven. For that reason, James could tell doubting, disheartened Sarah, count it all joy that you do not yet have a son. God's testing you pushing you through the agony of spiritual exercise so that you'll persevere in your faith and have greater enjoyment of covenant with him. Now let's prayerfully maintain that perspective of trial when we go through it. God is building into our faith grit and nail-gripping persistence. Consider also that just as in the life of Abraham and Sarah, James tells us that trial will come from God in various ways and times. There's no immunity for her, of, of earthly trouble for the Christian. In some sense, it would be better to say that to be a disciple of Christ is to court trial. God will periodically test us and try our faith. It's promised. It's inevitable. He scourges every son and daughter that he receives. Trials of faith like what Sarah and Abraham endured are common to the Christian life. Maybe not in this exact way, but nevertheless, the principle holds true. By way of simple application, let's just note how much easier the trial would have been to endure and successfully navigate if Abraham and Sarah encouraged and edified one another in that trial recognizing it for what it was, declaring it to one another for what it was, a trial of faith, acknowledging that truth to one another. What if Abraham had simply refused to heed the advice of Sarah? Now, no doubt he saw her pain. He saw her doubt, her worry, her longing. But what if Abraham had encouraged Sarah in that moment to wait on the Lord? What if she had waited on the Lord at Abraham's word as one who possessed faith, would she not then have renewed her persistence? 
Would she not have discovered, as the psalmist declares, that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength? Would she not have found that her faith mounted up with wings like an eagle, that her patient trust in God ran again without being weary, and that her persistence increased and her perseverance enlarged as she continued to walk with God without fainting? If only. If only. Brethren, let's recognize that various trials will come to us. It'll come to our brethren around us from the hand of God. It's going to come from time to time. And when those trials come, let's be prepared to edify and encourage one another in patient endurance, in that steadfastness, what I've described to you as that nail-gripping persistence. When we see our brethren slowing down under the weight of trial. Let's be prepared to help them bear that burden and to wisely endeavor to stir them up again to love and good works. Abraham and Sarah were unprepared, at least in part, they were unprepared to do that. They failed to do that for each other because they didn't have the wisdom to properly interpret the trial of faith which God's providence had brought into their lives. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't see it coming. They didn't know what to do when it arrived. Now that leads me to another teaching of James regarding trial in the believer's life. James tells us that it requires wisdom to interpret and successfully navigate trial. He explains that Abraham and Sarah, his explanation of this idea of wisdom, it explains how Abraham and Sarah didn't have this wisdom that they needed to understand the apparent laxness of God in fulfilling the promise of of a covenant heir. In the absence of the wisdom and that understanding, that spiritual insight that they needed, their doubt led them into spiritual chaos. In James 1, 5 through 8, we read these words. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now as common as trial is in the life of a believer, so also is natural fallen ignorance and folly in the face of trial. The answer to the problem that Sarah and Abraham needed, the answer that they didn't seem to know even to seek, was wisdom, wisdom from God. Sarah needed to properly interpret the difficulty of the last 10 years in the wilderness. She needed to have a godly, spiritual perspective of all that material hardship and unfulfilled expectation. James simply says, ask for it. God is generous. He gives generously to his people. Ask for the wisdom you need to navigate the trial God brings into your life. He's not going to reproach you for it. In the absence of that asking, we discover the absence of receiving. You do not have because you do not ask. In the absence of receiving wisdom, then, Abraham's actions devolve into folly. And and Sarah's solution soon reveals itself as folly to her. In Genesis 16, 4 through 6, we read what happened as soon as Abraham agreed to conception by way of Hagar. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. She basically is accusing Abram of lack of wisdom in dealing with the trial. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you wish or as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. What a mess. What a mess. It reads almost like a daytime drama, doesn't it? In the absence of seeking wisdom from God to know and to submit to his will in this trial, the folly of man ends up presiding over the trials of life and moral and spiritual chaos soon ensues. Brethren, James's guidance is so simple and yet it's so profound. Trial will come, so pray. Your faith will be tested, so go to the tester for what is necessary to pass through the trial with grace and growth. Your first knee-jerk reaction, we might say, to the trials and the troubles of life should be an immediate prayer for wisdom. That is, a plea to God to fear him and depart from evil as you face the trial. When trial comes, your immediate regenerate perspective as a new creation in Christ Jesus is to see the hand of God in that trial and therefore your reaction is to be to seek the goodness and the wisdom of God to navigate that trial successfully. God help us do that. To not dig ourselves into a hole through our own folly. We know And we're taught in Scripture that wisdom begins with the fear of God. Solomon teaches us that. And we know that the fear of God is to depart from evil. We therefore know that Abraham and Sarah did not face this trial with wisdom because their response to it was to pursue a course of immorality. Brethren, it ought not be so among the elect who live by faith. In the face of trial... Every help to wisely navigate it rests with our loving and gracious Heavenly Father. And since he has designed the very trial with which we're being tested and put it into action, who better to go to for wisdom dealing with it faithfully? It's his trial, as it were. It's his test. He's the author of it for his people. Now, one last thought and we're done. It's a thought of warning. James warns us, and we, do, we need to be careful not to miss his warning. He explains the chaos in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, which begins in a bungled, doubting response to a trial of God. In James 1, 6-8, we read the following warning. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now from this point forward, James begins to explain what has happened to the people of God. What has happened to Sarah and Abraham. He explains why everything seems to begin to spin out of control in terms of attitudes and emotions and and existential consequences. Now next week we'll pick up here and we'll work to explore what James means when he speaks of the double-minded man or woman and how that ties in with doubt and the events of Genesis 16 and 21. So hold that thought, put a bookmark there, and we'll pick this up next Sunday.